So why don't you open your Bibles to Exodus 33. It's on page 117 if you've got the Brown Bible in front of you. And we're going to read from verse 1 through to verse 11. This is just after the Israelite, Moses come down from Mount Sinai with the law and the Israelites have made it an idol, the golden calf, and started worshipping it. Verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you've brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I'll send an angel before you and I'll drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which is outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent of meeting, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. And when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. And when Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant, Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Well, can I ask you as we begin, what are your hopes for uh, 2015? What are your hopes for this new year? I think it's customary always at the approach of a new year to take stock and to think about your life up to now and your direction and your hopes and your dreams and uh, often to make some kind of resolutions. And I think that the whole idea of making resolutions is uh, potentially very damaging if you, if you see them as a, as a means to become acceptable to God. I will change my life. I will um, I will become the kind of person who God can love. But also the potential for amazing power of God to work in your life. Paul tells um, Titus that um, uh, the young men ought to walk in what he calls the discipline of grace, which is to say that when you, when you know the gospel and its power, it, it, can, it can enable you to walk in a new and disciplined life. And so as you're approaching this new year, my question for you is, how... How are you hoping that you, you'll grow? How are you hoping that you'll change? And what are your priorities for, for growth and for change? What is it that you look at in your life and think, this is what needs to change in my life. This is what I need to put in place or I need to get right uh, in order to, to become a, a man or woman of God. Now, 
I wanted to focus here on, on Joshua. He's just mentioned in the very last verse that I read. Because when we read these early books of the Bible, it, it turns out that he is something of a standout leader. He is, um, in many ways, a model servant of God in the Old Testament. His very name um, is the same name as, as Jesus, is Yeshua, Joshua. It's the same name. And he stands in the Old Testament as a kind of, what you might call a type of Christ. So that there are all these images and, and pictures and echoes of what Jesus would be like as, uh, in his coming that are represented in various characters of the Old Testament. And Joshua is one of those. He represents so much of, of what Christ would do as a kind of savior of the people. And obviously the pinnacle of his life, the point at which he... Um, really reaches his, his peak is when Joshua leads the people into the land of Canaan. In fact, we're still living with the repercussions of his life and what he achieved with his life as the conqueror and the commander-in-chief of the people of Israel and the conqueror of Canaan. Um, th- those repercussions echo on into today. So there's, if you're, he's one of these guys who literally, quite literally, changed the world and, and changed the world in, in line with God's hopes and plans and purposes for the world. But, that's to jump to the end of the story. And when, you, when you're reading through the books of Moses and you're looking at the life of, of Joshua, what you discover is that he didn't just land fully grown into that role. He wasn't, it wasn't like he just was plucked out of nowhere and appointed to be Joshua, commander-in-chief of the people of Israel and changer of the world. He was, before that, um, preeminent among the people of Israel as a man of God and shown various things in his life. One example of this is that long before he leads the people of Israel in battle, to Canaan, he's already been a proven general in the field. So he's, he's a warrior. He's a, he's a hardened, battle-hardened soldier who has walked out in faith and trusted God and seen victory on the battlefield. Not only that, you can see that over in Exodus 17 when we read about one of the stories of his, uh, his battles. Not only that, but he's also one of the only guys in Israel who doesn't worship the golden calf when, uh, in this previous chapter... Aaron builds this thing and everyone melts their jewelry together into this idol and worships. Joshua is one of the guys who doesn't and he's so deeply offended by what Israel has done. It's a kind of sign of the purity of his heart, that his heart was wholly devoted to God. Another example of um, the kind of thing, the pattern that you're seeing in, in Joshua's life is maybe the most famous example is in Numbers 13 where the spies go into the land, the 12 spies, um, they've been wandering around in the desert. Moses sends 12 spies into the land to go and have a look around and see what Canaan is like. And as they come back, 10 of them come back with a report that says, there's no way that we can conquer this land, that we're going to get slaughtered, we'll be killed, there's giants in the land. Joshua and Caleb, just two men, come back and they're grieved in their heart and they, they plead with Israel to recognize that God can do it. In fact, it's worth just looking at those verses in Exodus, uh, sorry, in, in uh, Numbers 14, where Joshua says this. And you begin to catch something of what defined this man, what was that, that made him the man he was. In Numbers 14, particularly 
uh, verse 7. It says that he and, and Caleb, they said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we pass through to spite out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he'll bring us into this land and give it to us. A land that flows with milk and honey. So he says, if the Lord delights in us, he says it's not impossible, it's not even hard for the God we believe in to do this for us. That is, that's faith. That's the language of faith that's on his lips. And just one more thing I want you to notice about him is that in this last verse we read in Exodus 33, he's described here as Moses' assistant. The word literally just means servant. So we see this man who is a, a general, a, a spy, a faith-filled spy, a true worshipper of God. He doesn't worship the idol. And a servant of God's, God's man, Moses. There's so much about him that just fills out the, the character of who he was. And I say all that because at this point that it was years of faithfulness that prepared Joshua for his leadership of the people of Israel when Moses finally dies. He doesn't land full grown into that role. And this is something that Jesus specifically talks about as a principle when he says that that God blesses those who are faithful in the little things. And he entrusts them with greater things. But I think that the most important thing that we can see about Joshua is here in this verse. That if we were to ask, what was it that made him the man he became? I think the answer has to do with his prayer life above everything else. You look at this verse, it says, When Moses turned again into the camp, His assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Which is just another way of saying that he wanted to remain in God's presence. He wanted to remain in prayer even after Moses has gone. That's Joshua. That's what defines this man. Just up the road there's a church um, called Metropolitan Tabernacle which was led by um, Spurgeon back in the 1900s. Uh, sorry, the 1800s. 1900s was only a few years ago, wasn't it? Back in the 1800s. And uh, he, um, whenever he would, would preach, his church, some of the members of his church used to have a room down in the basement, which they would call the boiler room. The idea being that they would gather there and pray even as the services were proceeding. And Spurgeon led probably the first mega church in history, a church of 6,000 plus people in this area, and planted hundreds and hundreds of churches across this nation. But he always understood that both personally and privately in his own life and walk, that prayer came first. And also in his church life, he instilled it as a principle that his people would be a people of prayer. And they were. And God blessed that church enormously and the thing I'm trying to put across to you is that this is also true of Joshua it's true of him and I want to just offer this as a challenge to you at the beginning of this year I think often we want to jump into the roles that God has for us and we want to serve him in all kinds of ways and our emphasis can be on action when in the Bible the emphasis is nearly always on preparation and particularly on the preparation of, of prayerfulness. Of what it is to be a person who, who wants to seek God in prayer consistently, faithfully. 
We see it even in Jesus' own life, as I've been pointing out to you. And that is what he then teaches and imparts to his disciples through the Lord's Prayer. So what is it then about prayer that's so vital in Joshua's life and that we need to learn? Uh, Why is it the essential thing? I want to give you three answers to that. The first is that prayer is a kind of qualification for service. I, um, I've done a number of um, part-time jobs through my life, and most jobs you can just step into, temping, um, whether it's, I've worked in McDonald's, I've delivered newspapers, I've worked on building sites, I've done all kinds of things. But one job I did required a qualification. It was because um, people's lives were at stake, and it, I was a pool lifeguard. I had to train for hours and hours, learning how to pull people out of the water safely, and um, administer mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, which is always done on a plastic dummy, by the way, um, the Rosasiani. But the point is, they wouldn't let you loose on the poolside unless you were first qualified for the role. And we see this almost as a principle in, in the lives of men and women of faith in the Bible, that God looks for people um, who, who possess certain qualities. And I think prayer is right at the heart of what God is looking for when he's looking for men and women of faith. You see it as a pattern running through the scriptures. You could think about, um, right at the start of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, you, you, you read these verses about men who are, who are singled out. So in the list of genealogies, in, uh, where is it, down in Genesis 5, it, name after name is mentioned, and then we come to this guy called Enoch, and it just says a simple phrase about him, that he walked with God, and then he was not, because God took him. And for some reason... The author, Moses, who wrote Genesis and the story which had been passed down to him, in recording the genealogies, it just singles out this one thing about this one man, that he was different from everyone else on the face of the earth because he walked with God. You turn over into the next chapter and you start to read the account of God's frustration and anger with the sinfulness of men, and you get to Noah. And what does it say about Noah? The exact same thing, that he was a man who walked with God. This refrain is echoed again. In other words, God found a man who walked in communion with him, who talked and listened, who who prayed, essentially, and found communion with the Father in prayer. If we move rapidly through the scriptures, we come to a place like 1 Samuel. 1 and 2 Samuel, written about it, the hero of those books, Samuel himself, one of the greatest prophets in Israel's history. But Samuel's story doesn't begin with Samuel. It begins with his mother, Hannah. And Hannah was a barren woman. But she, in, in 1 Samuel 1, in going to temple with her husband, it says that she sought God in prayer. She, her heart was deeply grieved about the fact that she hadn't had any children. And she begins to pray. And she's so... Um, I suppose in her own world, in prayer, as her lips are moving, but no sound is coming out of her, her mouth, that the priest Eli sees her and thinks she's, she's drunk. But prayer is for her the foundation of what then proves to be an, an, a mightily important series of events as God answers her prayer, gives her this son Samuel, and Samuel is dedicated to God and becomes the, the same prophet who later anoints King David. And so a sequence of events is is set in motion that changes the course of Israel's history, but it all begins with a woman in prayer. You look at um, the story of David himself, how 
Samuel goes at God's command to Jesse's family and starts going through all the sons. And he's got loads of these sons. And most of them are quite, um, I'm sure they're the soldiers in the army and they're preeminent, strong, mighty men. And uh, he goes through, knocks them all off and says, no, it's not him. No, it's not him. No, it's not him. No, it's not him. Do you have any more sons? And Jesse says, well, I've got one more son. He's out you know, doing the dirty work in the field. His name is David. And so they bring David in. And what it says about the fact that Samuel anoints David to be the next king of Israel is that it says God doesn't look at the outward appearance, but he looks upon the heart. And you ask, well, what was it that God saw in David that qualified him? And we know, don't we, when we read the Psalms, the songbook of Israel, most of which were written by David, or the vast, uh, a huge proportion of which were written by him, that he was a man of prayer, that he found communion with God. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You can imagine him, can't you, on the hillside, with his lyre, composing songs and, in, and enjoying intimacy with God in a way that it seems very few, if anyone else in Israel did. That's why it was said of David much later um, that he is a man after my own heart who will do all my will. God found a man who wanted to know him and who sought him in daily, fervent, intense prayer. And he says, that's the man that I'll anoint to be king. We could go on and talk about more examples. Daniel, amazing example of prayer. He had a pattern of praying three times a day, which it seems to have been unique to him in the Bible, but has formed a kind of template for uh, many Jews ever since, and so on. So the question is then, if prayer is something that qualifies you for service or for leadership, or for, for God to use you in his kingdom, why is it prayer that God looks for above everything else? I think it really comes down to a couple of things. It comes down to, on the one hand, the fact that God, in looking for people to use, he's looking for people who, who want relationship with him, who are, as it says about David, people who are after his own heart. And this is what you, you see when you read the, about the great men and women of faith in the Bible. They're people who... They're willing to serve God and they want to be used by God. But their great preoccupation is that they want to know God for who he is. They want their hearts to be captivated by him. And so God is looking for people like David who are people who are after his own heart. But a second thing is this, that the reason why prayer is something that qualifies you for service is that God also is looking for people who know how to depend upon him. And there is no other way of depending upon God other than through prayer. This is the way that God has taught us that we lean into him, that we express and make explicit the fact that we need him. The fact that we can do nothing without him. It's through prayer that we we come to God and, and tell him all of our hopes and dreams and burdens and needs and everything that we need. God is looking for people who are dependent. And the opposite, of course, is also true. That God has no regard for people who are not dependent upon him. This is something that comes through in the Psalms in a number of places. Psalm 20 says this, that some trust in chariots and some in horses, 
But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And towards the end of the Psalms, in Psalm 147, we get the same kind of idea coming through. Psalm 147, and verse 10 to 11, it says this. That his delight, God's delight, is not in the, the strength of the horse, nor is pleasure in the legs of a man. Of course, in talking about chariots and horses and legs, it's talking about the things which, which were the epitome of strength in, the, in that day and age, before you had motorization and engines and gunpowder and all the rest of it. The things you relied upon were cast iron chariots, horses that were bigger than the enemy's horses, and legs that would run you into battle. And he says, God doesn't delight in those things. He says, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those whose hope is in his steadfast love. That God is, is looking around and he's looking for people who trust him, who lean into him, who recognize that without him, they are quite literally powerless and can do nothing, which is what Jesus says. Let me just give you one more verse just to confirm what I'm trying to say to you. King Asa is approached, he's a, he set a challenge in which he's, he has to show how much faith he has in God by firing arrows out of a window. and I won't explain it all. But anyway, the prophet Hanani comes to him and he says to Asa, because you relied on the king of Syria and didn't rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. We're not the Ethiopians and the Libyans, a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen. Yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. He's actually rebuking him as saying, look, why can't you trust God like you did in all the previous battles that you've experienced in life? And he's, so he's putting it negatively and saying, God, God isn't pleased with you because you don't trust me and therefore God can't bless you. But then he puts it in the positive way that God is looking I think this verse is as true now as it was then. That God's eyes are looking throughout the earth. They're roaming to and fro. Looking for those whose hearts are steadfast toward him. Which is just another way of saying that God is looking for people who trust him. He's not looking for people who are strong. He's not looking for people who are naturally gifted. He's not looking for people who are necessarily the most godly. He's not necessarily looking for people who are the bravest or the most consistent or the smartest or who know the Bible the best. He's looking for people whose hearts are steadfast toward him. About whom it could be said that faith is their defining characteristic and faith always has to find expression in prayer. God is looking for people who are prayerful. One of the, the authors whose, whose works are, they're just really incomparable on the subject of prayer was a man called E.M. Bounds. He wrote a number of books about prayer, but he wrote one book called Power Through Prayer, which is probably his most famous. And 
on the first page, um, he writes this, and uh, I've always found it one of the most striking uh, things I've ever read. He says this, that we are constantly on a stretch, if not on a strain to devise new methods, new plans, new organizations, to advance the church and secure enlargement and efficiency for the gospel. This trend of the day has a tendency to lose sight of the man or of the person and to sink the man in the plan or the organization. He says, God's plan is to make much of the man, far more of him than of anything else. Men are God's method. He could have said, today he'd write, men or women are God's method. The church is looking for better methods, but God is looking for better men. And he wrote this in a book about prayer. And so I want to ask you, when, you, when you articulate your hopes for the ways that you want to be used by God, the ways you want to serve God, do you find that there's a mixture of you know, hope deferred and frustration and a kind of a wanting to get on with things and all that, those kind of mixed emotions? Do you find that you are experiencing delay in all that you want to see God do in your life? It's my conviction that God is looking for people who learn to pray before anything else. That that is what qualifies you for service. Now I want to say that and say it couched in, in what we know about God's grace. That God in his love isn't looking for perfect prayers. He's not looking for the most mighty prayers. He's not looking for people who pray the longest or the hardest or whatever. He just wants people who sincerely rely on him in this way. Let me move on and say secondly, prayer doesn't only qualify you for service. It also equips you for service and most especially for influence and for leadership. And here's what I mean. If you're to boil down what is our role on this planet, I think you could get it down to a couple of things. What does God want us to do? What is our role in extending his kingdom here on earth? And it really comes down to a couple of things. One is Godward and the other is manward. But the Godward aspect is, has to do with this whole idea of representation. That God has called us to be his representatives on earth, representing people and situations to him. And the other aspect has to do with, um, with revelation, that we are then God's conduits who bring something of who God is and his kingdom to earth. It's a two-directional thing. Let me just unpack that a little bit more for you and, and help you to see how prayer is at the very heart, at the very center of what it means to do God's will in your life on this earth. With the, the first thing, this idea of representation, what, what I mean is this. If you were to flick on um, Prime Minister's Questions on a, on a Wednesday and watch the way the discussions take place in the Houses of Parliament, occasionally an MP will stand up and they will phrase a question in such a way towards the Prime Minister that demonstrates that they are there representing people as the voice for, for a number of people. That's how representation works. So they might put up their hand and say, um, would my honourable gentleman guarantee that the spending cuts won't affect such and such a hospital in my constituency? 
And so they're bringing the interests of people who can't speak for themselves, who could never get the ear of the Prime Minister, to him. People who maybe haven't even thought about the things that might concern them. Now, think about this story in Exodus, where we've been reading from, how in the previous chapter, the people of Israel have messed up on a, an epic scale. They have, they have, they've been rescued by God, and now they've become idolaters within the space of a very short space of time. And it says very damning things about them. In Exodus 32.6, it says that they, they rose up the next day and offered burnt offerings and pe- brought peace offerings to the cow that they've made. And it says the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. In other words, all they did, now that they'd abandoned God in favor of this idol, was that they were just interested in immediate gratification and pleasure. They just want to fill their mouth with food and they want to play and and do nothing else. It says over in the next page, that as soon as Moses came near the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing. And it says that Moses, his anger burned hot for them because he sees this people who have no idea how much they're offending God. But Moses then has a choice. He loves the people of Israel. He loves them even though they have no idea how much they are offending the living God by their kind of, their obsession with with gratification and pleasure and all this kind of stuff. And so as you read on into the next chapter, you find that Moses becomes really the only hope for the people of Israel. He becomes a saviour to them in a sense. In verse 7 of Exodus 33, it says that he used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And it speaks of a couple of things. It speaks on the one hand of the fact that God was angry at the people and that the tent of meeting, the place where God's presence would be found, could not be among the people because they were so rebellious and God would just, his presence would just consume them and kill them. So it has to be, as a symbol almost of his anger and displeasure with them, the tent has to be set up outside the place where they camp. But Moses calls the tent the tent of meeting, which is to say, even though God has to separate himself from you, there is still the opportunity that you can come to know God and that you can come and find um, acceptance in God. And Moses himself, he's a guy who stands in the gap in between Israel and all their sin and all their brokenness and, and the living God. And God, you saw it in these earlier verses, how God says, look, fine, you can go into Canaan, I'll let you have it. I'll let you have the land flowing milk and honey, but I will not go with you because I might consume you on the way. I might judge you until you're gone. And Moses pleads with, pleads with God and says, if you don't go with us, essentially we have nothing. Your presence is everything to us. That's what defines us. That's, that's what makes us your chosen people. Now, the reason why I want you to understand this story is that I want you to see the place of Moses as a representative in prayer. And understand that this is a picture of what prayer is in general. That you, when you come to God, you have concerns and cares and responsibilities. Things that God has brought across your attention. Things in your family. Things that are personal. Aspects of the life of this church. People who don't know Jesus. And 
Moses sets an example for us here of what it means to be a representative and, and to get the favour and the blessing of God for people and situations, even when they're not the ones praying. And you see how prayer is central to what it means to be a servant of God. And not only is this true of Moses, but this is also, of course, true most preeminently and most powerfully of Jesus himself. Moses, again, is a kind of a type of Christ because he sits there as a priest representing the people. But this is true of Jesus more than it's true of anyone else in the Bible because he is ultimate and final high priest who represents us before God. In Hebrews chapter 7, we see this said about Jesus that he is, let me just get the right verse, Hebrews 7.25 that consequently he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. It means, in real terms, that Jesus is constantly praying for you. That in his capacity as the Son of God, He is able to hold together the concerns and needs of the entire planet and of his church in particular and represent you to his Father and to pray for you without ceasing. You get a glimpse of what that prayer might be like when you read John 17 and Christ's high priestly prayer. You understand his heart and his compassion for his people and how he prays for strength and unity and oneness and godliness and all these kinds of things. This is what Jesus is praying for you. And I say all that to underline this fact that for us as Christians who want to be more like Christ, we can perhaps never more be more like Christ than in this area than in becoming people who intercede in prayer for the needs that we see in the world around us. That's leadership in the kingdom. That is service in the kingdom. That's your most important role. So when you're thinking about this year ahead and you're thinking, well, these are the ways in which I'd love to grow or love God to use you, can I just encourage you to put this right at the top of your priority list. And I don't want to lay it on you as a heavy burden because I think for those of you who find prayer hard, you might think, this is impossible. How could I ever become like Moses or like Christ and pray in this way? Thankfully, thankfully Jesus accepts us in all our weakness. And he takes our weak prayers and makes them something much better. But... Prayer equips you for service because it makes you a representative, but also because it makes you capable to reveal something of God. So this is the other dimension, the other direction of what I'm talking about here. When you look back in Exodus 33, it says of Moses that he used to speak face to face as a man speaks to his friend with the living God. It's never really, I don't think it's said of anybody else in, in the Bible that, he enjoyed, that they, he enjoyed a unique relationship with God. But I think this is also part of the reason why then it says about Joshua, that he stayed in the tent. 
it's evident that when we're looking at the patterns of his life and what made him the man he was, he was a man who sought God, who sought to know God, and that the knowledge of God then transformed the way he lived and the way he expressed faith in God and the way he led and the way he fought and the way he conquered and the way he, he dealt with fear in his own life. What I'm trying to say is that for Moses and Joshua, it was in the presence of God that they found revelation about who God is that then utterly transformed their lives. You and I are called to be Christ's ambassadors in the world, which is to say that our job is not just to represent the world to God in prayer, but it's also to represent what we know of God, and particularly what we know of the gospel, to the world. But that is only possible when you're a person who, who knows him truly and deeply. And that your knowledge of him isn't just the knowledge of one who's, whose head is full with the theology books, as wonderful and important as that is. But your knowledge is the knowledge of one who, who speaks with love. If, I, if somebody asks me, who's never met me, and asks me about my wife, and I start telling them, well, her hair is black and she's got brown eyes, and um, she's a doctor and all these kinds of things, and just tell them facts about her, they'll never really get to know her, will they? But if I tell them something of her personality and her character and the things I love about her, they might even get to a point where they feel like they know her without having met her. And that only comes from having spent countless hours, one-on-one, eye-to-eye, talking with her as the closest friends that we could be. And what I'm trying to encourage you guys to understand is that whatever else you do in life, your most important function to the world is as an ambassador of Christ. Listen to how Paul puts it in in 2 Corinthians 5. He says this, that all this, he's talking about the gospel, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, our job is to help people to know God. He says that that is in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He saw his function and his role as one who, like an ambassador, who can go with peace terms to another country even a country that you're at war with, an ambassador can go with all the protections of um, diplomatic privileges and he can go to the heart of government and represent his, his country to that government and tell them, look, these are our peace terms. And Paul says that is how we speak to men. We offer them terms of peace, terms of reconciliation with the living God. But the ability to do that and the power with which you can do that can only come when you know God. 
when you can say like Paul that your, your preeminent desire is to know Christ. And friends, while that comes through the scriptures, it also comes through the place of prayerful meditation upon God's truth and through knowing him in the place of prayer, in the secret place. So what I'm trying to say to you is that, and I hope it's getting across, is that prayer is the most important thing you can do with your life in this year ahead. I think it's alongside the study and the immersion in the word of God, it is, it's right there is, is the very central thing that we are on this planet to do. And even the book of Revelation shows us that we'll be praying even after we've left this planet. Because the saints are there gathered under the throne, pleading with God for those who are on the earth. Prayer is so high on God's agenda for you and for your life. And let me just close off by saying this. The prayer doesn't just qualify you and then equip you for service. It also then empowers you for service. And obviously there's much we can say on this, but... in essence, all I'm trying to say is that God answers prayer. You see it here in Exodus 33 as Moses continues to intercede for the people of Israel and God has mercy on them. That's his grace. That's the gospel. But then you see it also in the life of Moses who learns it from his mentor, from his leader Moses. And then over in Joshua chapter 7, the people of Israel experience a horrific defeat Uh, when they're trying to fight against a town called Ai. And Joshua's response, his knee-jerk reaction, and you can see this is is built over years of faithfulness, a trajectory that began when he was this young man in the tent. Now he's an old man, and he's the commander-in-chief of all Israel, the leader of the people. It says in Joshua chapter 7 that when they experienced defeat, he says it tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. Joshua had experienced that God answers prayer. And so he says, when we experience defeat, the only thing I can now do is come back to God in humility and pray. The thing I failed to do in the run-up to this, this attack on this city. He has learned that God answers prayer, that God empowers us. He empowers our service when we bring it to him in prayer. And so if you, like me, are wanting at the start of this new year to, to say, listen, I'm, I'm going to make this my goal. That I will pray above and before everything else. Let me just offer you a few pieces of practical advice to to close off. The first few of these come from um, a book by Don Carson on the subject of prayer. He opens with this. He says, firstly, that much praying is not done because we do not plan to pray. He says, we don't drift into spiritual life. We don't drift into disciplined prayer. So the first thing is that... If, if you want to make this, this change in your life, and I, you know, I'm just speaking hot air if I'm, we're preaching through the Lord's Prayer and none of us are actually doing anything about it in secret, as Jesus puts it, in our bedrooms with the doors locked. But if you want to make real practical change in your life, you have to have a plan. You have to decide where, when, and how you're going to do this. And then 
sure, you're not going to necessarily keep to your plan all the time, but without a plan, you won't achieve anything at all. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. Adopt, and this is, again, Carson's words, adopt practical ways to, to impede mental drift. He speaks good, doesn't he? But um, he's essentially saying this, that we, all of us know what it's like to come before God in prayer and then find that our minds flit across hundreds of different things that have nothing to do with what we're supposed to be praying about or what we came to God in prayer for in the first place. That is a common experience. Everyone knows what that feels like. And so you've got to find ways of overcoming that. Probably the best and most powerful way I know of, and um, Carson mentions it, I've experienced this, is, is to speak your prayers out loud. For a long time, as a boy, because of, I felt shy, and because I read what Jesus says, how you're supposed to pray in secret, I didn't want to pray out loud, even in my bedroom, in case someone overheard me. Now, you don't have to shout or anything, but if you can't vocalize your prayers, I don't know anyone who can pray in their mind um, for very long without, without just drifting and wandering off the subject. Speak out loud. Maybe write your prayers down. I know that Nicky Gumbel, who leads HTB, and Bill Hybels, who leads one of the largest states in the churches, both of them say that they, they write their prayers out in full because that is what helps them to sustain focus. I don't do that. I'm not saying it's necessarily the best thing to do, but find a way. Get a way. Maybe you, you find that you can focus more if you walk and pray. Thirdly, maybe think about finding a prayer partner. God has given us brothers and sisters in Christ for a reason, because we help one another to grow in Christ-likeness as we, we hold each other to account and speak truth and love to one another. And maybe what you need to do is say, to a brother or a sister in Christ, someone of the same sex, like, why don't we pray together once a week for a set amount of time and, and not let this pattern be broken for, the, for this year? And it will just become one little block in your life on which you can build faithfulness on the rest of the days of the week. And you can ask each other how it's going. Fourthly, develop a system for, for keeping your prayer list, your subjects, the content of what you want to pray about. Jesus told us as a principle of prayer in a number of places that God honors persistence in prayer. And I don't know any other way of remaining persistent in daily prayer about a subject other than writing it down. Because I don't have the best memory on the planet and I tend to forget the things, even things I care about, as new things crowd in. But when you filter down, what are the most important things to me right now? The things that I must see God answer. The things I have faith for and know that God could do something amazing in this situation. Write them down and don't forget them. Keep coming back to them day after day, even if you end up muttering the very same words time after time. God will hear your prayer. That's what Jesus says. That if you keep annoying him, like the widow at the door, knocking and knocking at the door of the judge and saying, please give me justice. He says, eventually, because of your importunity, your annoyingness, you're going to get through to him. God will listen to persistent prayers. Fifthly, recognize that there are, there are seasons and even just moments for heightened prayer. And I say this just mainly to set your expectations correctly. And what I mean is this. 
that when you read the Bible and when you read the lives of prayers of, of, of men and women of God and when you read the story of the church in general, what you find is that prayer does this in individuals and in, and in churches and in nations, that there are times of heightened and intense and devoted prayer and times when prayer is, is less intense. You see it even in the beginning of the book of Acts when it says that after Jesus has ascended and before the Spirit falls on them in Acts 2, it says in Acts 1 that all these with one accord, verse 14, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Now, I often think that when Luke is pointing out things like that, he's, he's, and like the miracles are another example, when he takes the, the time and the effort to write things down, it's because it was something notable and different from, what, from the norm. That somehow they'd entered into a season of prayer which was, was intense and, and heightened and, and different to the normal day-to-day life of the church. And of course, the fruit of this season is, is Pentecost, when God pours out his spirit upon them. And I say that because I think the same is true of us as individuals. That you'll go through seasons in life when maybe because circumstances are weighing on you more heavily than ever before, Maybe because the Spirit of God is moving on you and you're experiencing something of a personal revival. Whatever the reason, your prayer life will explode in, in depth, in intimacy, in power, and in fervency. And sure, maybe you could think, well, that's going to be what I aim for for the rest of my life. But I think it's helpful to recognize that that is a spirit birth thing and that you will go through seasons of up and down. But the thing is to remain constant in just keeping coming to God, even if you don't always feel the same degree of passion, the same degree of fervency and power in what you're doing. And Can I just add this last thing? You remember we were reading that verse in Hebrews 7 earlier. It says of Jesus that he always lives to make intercession for us. Part of his intercession for us is praying about the things we're not praying about, but it's also taking our weak and flimsy prayers with meager faith. And as our priest like a lawyer would, taking what you hope for and then representing it to God. Part of his intercession, in other words, is, is making your prayers better. So even the weakest Christian with the most pathetic prayer life can know that as they utter words in faith through Christ... Christ can make that prayer more powerful and more perfect and more effective than you'd ever dare dream or hope. Because he is your representative. He's your intercessor. It's the same pathway, of course, through which we know God's grace and forgiveness because Christ takes your life and represents you to God as one who has been covered by his blood shed for you. And by the same representation, he takes all the weakness of your efforts in Christ and makes them something. So above all, 
as you commit to a new year of prayer, I want to encourage you, do not forget that Christ is on your side and that he is making this effective and that our hope is in him.